0: This is the Future of Agriculture podcast, the show that explores the people, companies, and ideas shaping the future of agribusiness. If you're curious about innovations in ag tech, rural entrepreneurship, ag sustainability, or food security, this is the show for you. Let's get started. Hey there, thanks so much for downloading this episode of The Future of Agriculture. I'm your host, Tim Hamrich. Uh, If I sound a little bit weird this episode, it's because I am recording from our vacation. I didn't get everything done before I left. So the sound may sound a little bit weird, but the show must go on. I definitely spend a lot of time on the show covering startups in ag tech, so much that I think it's important to be clear that success in business, especially in agriculture, I would say, doesn't have to mean a billion-dollar exit or attracting millions in venture capital. That certainly is the right path for some, but for many, the problems in agriculture that need entrepreneurial talent to help solve them are not necessarily the right fit for that model. We've brought this up in the past on this show, and I'm sure it'll come up again that for some problems, man, that venture capital is really a useful tool. Uh, for other problems, doesn't make them less legitimate problems, just different problems. It's better to go maybe more the bootstrap route or the route that maybe focuses more on slow, steady growth over time. That's certainly one of the reasons I wanted to bring our guests onto the show that we have with us here today. They've built a thriving and successful business over time by staying true to their customers and true to their values and principles. We have on the show Danette Amstein and Michael Utes. They are the principals and co founders of Maiden Marketing, which is a full service marketing firm focused on the meat industry. Michael and Danette are each located in different parts of the country, where Maiden has offices, Michael in Chicago and Danette in Mooresville, North Carolina. In addition to the way that they've built their business, I wanted to bring them on because Maiden offers not just marketing expertise, but also consumer insights to help their clients understand the end consumer. This provided for a fascinating conversation about what they're seeing in trends between consumers, producers, and everyone in the value chain right now. We even get into a little bit of COVID talk for those of you who've been asking me how that might be affecting things in agriculture. And stick around to the end. We have another founder spotlight after my conversation with Danette and Michael. Jordan Fazy of Finite pitched at our last FOA community pitch event, and I share his story, which is also animal agriculture related. But first, let's jump into things with Danette and Michael of Maiden Marketing. We start our conversation with Danette describing the company.
1: We are more than a marketing company in most people's minds because we combined marketing, traditional advertising, and market research with Meet Consumer Insights to provide our clients with a solid understanding of what's happening in the marketplace with consumers in order to be able to help our clients talk to consumers and sell their product to them. So... In a nutshell, we are working to help our clients rise above all of the clutter that's in the marketplace, all above all the noise, so that they can match their products with the consumers out there that are interested in them.
0: And Michael, was that the vision, you know, from day one, or has it kind of evolved that way? Take us back to the beginning.
1: You know, it really
2: has been the vision all along. Danette and I actually met before Maiden when we worked for the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. So it really brought us each back to our roots. I'm from a cattle ranch in North Dakota, southwest North Dakota. And Danette comes from a feedlot, a grain farm, a cow-calf operation in southwest Kansas so the two of us knew we wanted to be in agriculture we got those traditional ag degrees from land-grant schools and got some great training wheels from the, the experience at the national Cattlemen's beef association and realized we really wanted to stick close to not only agric- agriculture but meat when we decided to start Maiden, both of us had had a lot of experience in tracking the consumer. When we worked for the Cattlemen, I was in market research and evolved into working with retail, and Danette was on the retail program as well. And, and it was truly all about what is the consumer looking for and how do we be responsive to their needs? You know, back when I started in that organization, it was a struggle to get producers all the way on the other end of this marketing channel to think about what happens beyond the gate, and we worked a lot in helping bring bring the messaging and the that that need state from consumers back, even as far as the producer. And when we started Miden, that was one of the foundational elements is we wanted to continue to carry the significance of what is the end game here for the industry? If consumers don't want to buy what you're serving them, we're not going to be successful. So let's listen and tra- let's track consumers, let's listen to what they're needing and make sure that we're producing product that's gonna really going to satisfy the need
0: great yeah those are a couple of pretty remote places you know, Southwest North Dakota and Southwest Kansas you had that connection instantly I'm sure <laughs> well how ha- has the demands from your clientele changed here in recent months as we're kind of still in this sort of social distancing, COVID-19 situation. Danette, can you maybe speak to that?
1: (laughs) Yeah, we've got a a team right now that's pretty much just focused on what I would call the crisis management side of things, right? There's a lot of different messages that need to be shared with the consumer. I don't know what the count is today, but we have quite a few plants across the country that have closed. We have some large ones reopening yesterday and today, which is very, very helpful. And we have had feathers that are trying to produce as much meat as they can, running staggered shifts, spreading people out, having a lot of absenteeism. So for our clients, it's a lot of, of effort right now to help them communicate both internally and externally to help address the concerns with the virus, with with COVID-19, and also the concerns that are certainly bubbling up and all over the media right now as far as the potential for meat shortages in the future. I mean, that's not where we're at right now, but should things continue down a path or the trajectory of having to close plants increase, that's a real possibility.
0: And Michael, what about for you two as business owners? And and I'll specify who I reach out to, but feel free for the other to chime in at any time. That way I just avoid you, you feeling like you're walking on each other. But Michael, as business owners, and I know you also have remote employees, how has this been to make sure that you can both support those employees who are all going through this weird time, but also help them, you know, still be effective in their work
2: mm-hmm. it's been an interesting transition tim we have a a portion of our team that has has been they have been off-site employees so they they've actually worked in their homes one of the uniquenesses that we bring i think from an agency perspective is that we have a lot of folks on our team who actually come from industry so, we've got, we've got team members who are actually raising hogs and raising cattle, and they're out on their, their, their farms and ranches around the country. And those are the people that are our account people that deal with our clients day in and day out. So, they not only can talk the talk, but they've walked the walk. And, and I think that that makes them be able to better align and guide and provide strategy and expertise from a marketing perspective. So they were used to working off-site. The rest of us were all in, in offices. And so when the shelter in place came about, thankfully, we've got a powerful team who's very focused on technology and because we've been, we've been working with a team of offsite players, we had that whole system in place. We've got a powerful project management team that helps move projects through the system. And so when we all went and moved into our homes, we were lucky because it was fairly seamless. The challenges you have in our in, with our team as well as I, I'm assuming every team is all of a sudden you're in a different environment. You've got kids you need to care for. You've got to try to educate kids. You've got spouses around. You've got pets around. In some instances, it's kind of chaotic in your home environment and you're supposed to be working. So we, we try to over communicate with our team about caretaking, about making sure that they they take care of themselves and their family. That comes first. We've set up some flexible time schedules, knowing that some folks are on a schedule that they do have to caretake for their kids. So there are blocks of time when they may not be available for work. And everybody knows that and understands that. When we get people on Zoom calls, you may have a cat or a dog show up or a child come running up and wanting to you know, be a part of the video. I mean, all those things you just sort of assume that that's that's sort of the new normal for now and in order to get the best out of our team we have to make sure that they're taking care of themselves and we try to really focus on them having an awareness of the challenge and that we're okay and we understand do what you need to do
0: yeah you all were referred to me by jeanette barnard one of the reasons she said was you know if you want to talk to people who have built a real you know substantial business that feels like still the type of company that caters directly to their client and is accessible to their client you know you need to talk to Miden and that really intrigued me so i guess for lack of a better question on this how do you do that Donette, how do you, how do you build a company like that that has the 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 horsepower to to handle the you know the capacity but still the the personal attention
1: oh tim i I don't know. I, I haven't built anything else. This is this is Michael's and my first attempt at something like this, and we've been incredibly blessed. I would say the number one thing, and not to be cliche, is the people. And we We had to learn we had to learn how to hire, and that was we were we got incredibly lucky early on before we really knew much about that, and got some amazing people. And then as we've grown and the needs of our clients have continually evolved, it. Took us from being a young company, being more or less generalist, if you will, doing a little bit in every area to, as, as we matured, finding people that are specialists, that are really good in social media, or they're really good in market research, or they're really good in client relations and and letting them do their thing. So, so in many cases, it's more about Michael and I and the leadership team that we've put together to help us keeping the culture between the guardrails of what we see as, as we want what we would want to work at, where we would want to be. And I think that comes from being two farm kids that, that had a lot of independence growing up, but also had good role models around us and wanting to do that for others. And then in many cases just getting out of their way and letting, letting our team members shine.
0: And how do you assess for that culture fit when you're hiring? I would assume one critical piece to maintaining culture is the right people in the door, kind of like you mentioned. Then, of course, I'm sure there's things you do once they are in the door to kind of uh, really define that culture. But how do you assess for that in, in an interview process or before hiring somebody?
2: You know, we go back to our friend Patrick Lencioni and all we've learned from him. And and he has this concept of of hiring humble, hungry, and smart. And so we literally use those three indicators every time we hire, we're looking to hire someone and do do sort of an assessment of how they qualify in those three areas. The goal is to hit them all three. If you can hit two and a half or or a solid two with opportunity to grow on the third, we're good with that. But I think that's been a really good guide for us in determining who has the passion to come into being part of Maiden, who will fit with our culture. You know, one of the other platforms for development that Danette and I have always espoused to is that we never stop trying to learn. And we, we personally, you asked us about our books when we started. Well, we're, we're big readers. We're big podcasters. We go to conferences just to soak up content and information. We also have a pretty significant professional development program for all of our team members. And the goal is for them to never stop learning as well. And so I think you know, that desire to always want to be better, to, to, you know, continue to develop in a career. And we understand that when someone comes to work with us, it could be temporary, it could be long term, we've got, we've got employee number, number one is still with us uh, 15 years later. But we've got we've had a lot of people to come and go. And we figure, for the time you're with us, let's make the most of it. And if you're here and can find a role, and we can actually show you a path for the long term, then we've got a great relationship that we're going to form for a long long time if you're here for a short period of time and that's going to be one of those stepping stones let's let us help you and you help us as much as possible so that when you step out we both learned something we both were able to accomplish something and it was a great relationship
0: hmm. danette i think that's what a lot of executives would say but somehow you have actually managed to do it so what, what do you think is the hard part of that how come more companies don't do that
1: patience I'm not, I'm not a patient person so that you know it's funny for that I would say that our hiring process is long it isn't a one and done interview it it's multiple interviews with multiple people via video first and then in non-covid days coming into an office and and seeing what the chemistry is like then our onboarding process is actually a couple of months and so we're investing heavily in a team member before they're able to be productive and really move forward we like to get them able to do some things but there's a lot a lot to learn. There's a lot of processes and, and systems. So it's part of it is just we've learned by doing, right? We've I remember a couple of folks that we've hired that there was a good season for them to be with us. And then it was time we outgrew them or they outgrew us. And that's okay. That's fine. But through all of those experiences, you start you start to you get to you start asking questions and you you start to get a feel for people. And I've had to learn to trust my gut too, Tim, because sometimes that your, your gut will be a good guide for decisions. And finding the right people to join your team.
0: Definitely. Now, I know you all work a lot with Consumer Insights, and so can you maybe just give us a either a high level or an example of what are these meat companies looking to you when it comes to Consumer Insights? What are they looking to you to answer for them?
2: Like we talked about earlier, we are really focused on the consumer and what's in the going on in the mindset of the consumer. And, and we've been doing that for a long time. So we've watched the evolution of consumers over time. We actually, at Miden, look at consumers from a couple of different perspectives. On the one hand, we will look at them generationally. You know, for the last five, six, 10 years, everybody's been talking about the millennial and they really changed the way everybody looks at the consumer. It is no longer one size fits all. They were a game changer. They were the ultimate disruptor in, you know, how how we're understanding who our target is. And so we spent a lot of time looking at the generations and understanding the dynamics of what drives them to purchase. We also were the first to do what we call a meat consumer segmentation study, we did the first uh, the first version of that in 2016 and then repeated it in 2018 because we saw so much disruption in, the, in these key platforms of content happen in those two years that we wanted to go out and do it again. But from a segmentation perspective, when you think about how powerful that can be, segmentation is when we go out and talk to a nationally representative population of consumers and we talk to them not only we not only look at them from a demographics perspective but we ask them about their attitudes their perceptions their behaviors and then ultimately what drives them to purchase so it gets deeper into the psyche of a consumer and the way they operate versus just a a general questionnaire and you get a list of of responses in and you know you you uh, sort of profile them from that perspective If you think about who uses a segmentation, that would be branded companies who are looking to specifically target a specific type of of customer. And they know that it isn't just driven by generation. In fact, they're hoping members of all generations are going to come to their to to want their product. But there's something specific that they offer, that they offer in the in the attributes that they that they are, are providing or the way the product was produced that is going to attract a certain kind of consumer. And it's broader than just generations. So there's a couple of ways you can look at consumers. And I think our clients, because they're doing what they do best in the production process, they look for to us to help them understand again, who the end end consumer is and what they're needing to do, whether it be upstream or backstream to partner with their partners, to put a program together, a product together, a service together that is going to meet the needs of that specific target. And we, we're able to give them that insight from the end user to put into that equation.
1: I think all too often our, I'm gonna use the word meatheads and it's affectionate word here right now. Those of us in the meat industry that have grown up in it, we have our our heads are thinking about meat all the time. We have to step back and, and pretend we're in the, cheese section of the grocery store or the wine section of the grocery store and, and realize that, oh, suddenly we're completely out of place and we don't know what's going on. It's the same thing for consumers when they walk up to the meat case. Many of them don't understand it. So the work we can do to help be the translator, the interpreter from the meat industry to the consumer and back with that information is what will help us continue to, to move the needle for the, for the industry because we'll be meeting those needs and they'll want to buy more of the products that our, our clients are offering.
0: Yeah, Danette, let's talk a little bit more about that. So, you know, the wine and cheese sections have a lot of differentiation. In recent years, we've seen more differentiation on the meat side, but I'm sure that's something that you're helping your clients with is like, how do we take a, a traditionally commodity product and show what the differentiation is? I guess, you know, how, how are you helping clients with that?
1: Yeah, for a lot of our clients, they understand that if they're going to be around for a long time, they cannot be spending all of their time in the commodity space, right? They've got to go into the branded space. That means finding their niche, finding the, the place that they can specialize, whether that be on the specification side for the live animal, whether it be some extra product process they're doing in a product season, a marinating process, maybe, or if it's in the packaging side of things, whatever convenience, because there's so consumers are so diverse. We don't have to be one size fits all. We can go after a segment, and by targeting that segment and learning how to communicate to that segment, then if I'm looking for that product and I pick that up and it meets my needs, I'm starting to build trust in that brand and in that product, which will in turn lead to loyalty. Once they continue to pre- once the product continues to perform a time and time again. So where we want to help our help our clients go is into a trusting, loyal relationship with their consumers that works far. It's, it's easier to do, Tim, on the branded side, right? Because it helps the consu- gives the consumer the flags for what to look for. I bought that last time. It was great. I want to have it again versus the commodity side. So in many cases, we're helping our clients move into a variety of different targets for different consumers that helps them communicate to them in, in a variety of ways. I mean, Michael was talking about the millennials. Think about the explosion of social media, and the opportunity to co- to communicate in many ways that we didn't even have 10 years ago and how consumers are looking for that information. It's critical as we develop relationships with consumers.
0: Definitely. Michael, one thing I'm thinking about today is this shift right now with everyone kind of shifting the way they buy food, maybe not going to the grocery store as much, maybe buying online. You know, does this open the door for more kind of direct to consumer models for, for meat companies or is that something that you all are helping them think through?
2: We're exploring that right now, Tim. We went out and talked to meat consumers in March and just recently released what we call our COVID-19 meat consumer research study. And the goal for the study was to figure out what is different, how concerned consumers are, what is different and what's driving shifts and patterns. What we found out was that in fact, there is a tremendous concern with what we call food insecurity. And, and in particular, we're talking meat insecurity. That comes from a high anxiety for the concern for the virus. That also comes with shoppers going in and seeing emptying meat cases, but starting with the toilet paper and then it moved into the meat case. So they've see empty meat cases and it immediately goes to, okay, does that mean that there's not gonna be meat in the future? How bad is this? I need to stockpile. I need to start freezing more product. I need to buy anything that's in the case. I don't know what to do with it. There's almost chaos with our consumer base and we determined that millennials are are leading that struggle with what do I do now? My normal pattern of getting food for my family is being disrupted. We're seeing as well that there are a lot of differences that are happening right now. More online shopping. I mean, we've been tracking online shopping for quite a while. We're now seeing there's been an escalation of people who weren't perhaps ever going to consider shopping from it online or had, had thought about it but never stepped into it, who are now regular shoppers of online. Whether it be they're getting online to shop from their grocery store and having the product delivered, so they're not actually picking out the product, or they go to one of the, the many e-commerce sites that are offered out there, CrowdCow, Box, Holy Grail. There's a lot of options out there. And those companies are are finding that they're out of stock in a lot of areas because they've been inundated with requests from brand new shoppers who all of a sudden are very comfortable in shopping online. There's a lot of evolution that's going on right now. Some of it is probably going to be confined to this disruptive period as we go through what we've been challenged with, with COVID and this shelter in place. We're working to track this over time to see and try try to flag for our customers, for our clients, Where do we think we're going to land at the other end and how can we begin preparing now to be ready to pick up those shoppers and and continue to supply the product that they need where they need it and where they're comfortable purchasing it?
0: Yeah, I wonder how many of those are gonna go back to food service when they open up. I was looking at your all your blog and one thing I found interesting is you, you'd shared a, a graphic that showed Google search results for how to cook a steak. And it, you know, as as soon as March hit, it just, you know, hockey sticked up because these are people presumably that were getting their food at restaurants or getting their food, you know, somewhere else. And now they're like trying to figure out how to cook. And I imagine a lot of those are the people who are shifting you know, the data on some of these purchasing habits because they weren't going to the grocery store as much before anyway.
1: Right, they're they're picking up. They were either forced to pick up cuts they've never cooked before because that's what was available at the moment, or in their quest to try to stay at home and not go out, they they bought a variety of things. They're like don't know how to use it, so that's why mm-hmm. we have to be very thankful for the internet and for for Google and search engines to help get them to to recipes and to YouTube and how to how to videos and all sorts of things to help help them add to their repertoire. Normal consumers, all of us, have a fairly small stable of cuts that we're comfortable cooking. And one of the disruptors of COVID is that we're all trying things that we perhaps haven't tried before. And hopefully we're going to in the end find that we're comfortable with those. We've had good experiences and we've expanded our own repertoires in what we're willing to cook at home.
0: And Michael mentioned butcher box. So e- either one of you can can weigh in on this, but but those types of models that are, you know, just sort of some might call them disruptives, just e-commerce models, maybe, you know, where, how do you see those playing out? What's, what's sort of, and I'm not going to ask you necessarily to make a prediction, but I'm sure they're gaining traction in the near-term. Do you see them over the long-term kind of things trending that direction?
2: I think the the situation we're in right now has certainly made them a more viable option for a lot more consumers, consumers who never dreamed they would be buying meat online. You know, it's one thing to buy your meat, even transitioning to buying your meat, from your grocer online and having it delivered to you. It's another to actually buy it on the website and have it shipped directly to you from a vendor that you've never used before and get used to the process and getting product in that's frozen and working through it and, and, and all those kinds of logistics that you're not used to. But certainly there's a lot more consumers who are now familiar with those options. A lot more consumers are becoming more and more familiar and comfortable with those options. And I've been impressed with the way those e-commerce players have leaned into this opportunity and are working to understand how they can service those customers who are brand new and still trying to learn about it in in the attempt to make sure they're incredibly satisfied, they feel like they've got great value, and they're going to continue to be loyal even after we come out of this shelter at home. And, and there are a lot more options.
0: Hmm. On the flip side, Danette, I, I hear from some producers that are, I would say, Commodity, you know, beef producers, as an example, that that kind of say they kind of push back on the "we should listen to consumers" argument. They'll say, "Well, my customer is the packer or the feedlot, or you know, that they're not my customer. What? Why should I listen to them? Could you maybe provide some insight into why even at the producer level, you know, consumer insights are are important?"
1: Yeah, I I smiled. I know people couldn't see that when you said that, but I, I've been a farm girl. I've certainly run into that, Tim. So my response to that is we're all consumers. You know, it, it, they see themselves as raising the animal and then they take it off. It gets in the truck and it goes and becomes somebody else's responsibility to, to cut it up and get it in into uh, products that go into grocery stores. And many small farms have been around for generations and generations. And typically the farmer and his wife or the wife that's the farmer and her husband want to pass that farm on to the next generation. So the, the most important reason to be paying attention to the consumer is so that you can pass the farm on to the next generation. You know, I, I'm i lucky to be sixth generation, want to be able to be involved to pass it on to my children someday too. And if I'm not paying attention to, to the consumer, then I'm not getting top dollar for my animals. And if I'm not getting top dollar for my animals, I'm not able, I don't put myself in the best position to do that. And I really, that that's really for me, the bottom line. If we're, if we're paying attention to who wants to buy our product, I want to get the most for it. Michael and I were Fortunate early on in our careers uh, when we were with the National Cattlemen's Beef Association to help bring the flat iron steak to retail. So, and that, that came at a time where we had to figure out what to do with, with the chuck. NCBA was working on that with checkoff dollars to find more value because the price producers were getting for animals was not creating a sustainable livelihood for them. So, one of the, one of the challenges that the, the producers gave to then NCBA was how do we get more value out of the carcass? And by, you know, it sounds crazy now because it's been around for so long, but by cutting the chuck differently, we could get out this little muscle that was the second most tender piece of beef in the carcass. And that's worth a lot more when it's whole and can be sold that way versus going into three or four different chuck roasts, right? And we were blessed to be part of that opportunity to bring it to light. And what we got to see was the direct impact that had on the value of chucks. So when the packer says, hey, I can get more money out of that flat iron by cutting it different my chuck is worth more. Well, that means they're willing to pay more for some cattle. Well now they want to put some other claims on that flat iron, right? They want it to be Angus or they want it to be a never ever. And finding those niches for your animals just increases the value of the live animal. And that that's what helps us keep keep farmers farming, keep ranchers ranching. So that's why I would say, yeah, we we all have to pay attention to the consumer and their crazy whims as they have them, because that's ultimately, ultimately where the paycheck comes from.
2: Tim, if if we think about going back to generations, the younger generations who are coming into their own to be the most powerful dollar spend today on meat and every other product that they buy, millennials and right behind them, Gen Zs, they're the first ones that demanded transparency. They're the first ones to want to know more about everything that they purchase, including meat. So as, as as we think about even at the production level, you know, anybody who's raising the livestock, we have to think about that younger, up-and-coming consumer that is going to be the consumer of literally tomorrow. And if we're not thinking about what they're purchasing, what they're demanding, what they're demanding of their packer processor, which goes back to the feedlot operator, which goes back to the stalker, which goes back to the person who's raising the, the the calf or the hog, they're not going to to understand the value that they could get and we've got more and more of those of the processors and the you know further upstream uh, players there that are really tied into understanding that consumer and when they when they're willing to pay that extra dollar extra few cents even per pound for a product that meets those specifications it's the value that those producers are going to be able to get that keeps them in business and is going to keep them in business for the long run people who don't who aren't really concerned about any of the upstream are the ones who are going to be challenged to stay in in business in the long run. We really do believe that.
0: Yeah, it's, it's maybe even a little bit ironic that maybe some of those same people that make those claims are also very quick to make claims that, for example, the processor is making too much money and that value is, is not being passed down. So as you all look forward, how do we get more of that value evenly distributed throughout the value chain? And I know the obvious one right now as we sit in April of 2020 is we need to get these plants up and running. I mean, they actually need to have the ability to buy animals so that they can process them. But other than that, as you look for opportunities to maybe keep that value evenly distributed throughout all the participants, where do you see opportunities for that?
1: You know, because we work with Packers and because we work with companies that are, are the step past Packers taking the, the subprimals and turning them into all, so, all sorts of amazing, great products, we've been able to have these conversations. And it's very interesting for me to sit in those meetings. They are passionate about producers. They are passionate about protecting the livelihood of producers. And I know all producers, if they're listening right now, they're probably shaking their head going, I don't see that. I don't experience that. But I've I've got to experience it in boardrooms where they're passionate. They know they have to take care of those producers in order to have product, right? And in order to meet all these different niches for different consumers, different segments, they have to have different types of product. So the first thing is in order to move money more equally throughout the entire channel is the entire channel has to be communicating on what is needed. You know, we get, we get, we do the work with the consumer and we're backing that up all the way through the channel. But as long as the entire channel can understand it, then the entire channel can benefit from it. If we're asking one segment of the channel to really do all of the heavy lifting, then they're going to have the opportunity to take more of the More of the profits. When we produce the animals to meet the consumer's needs, we have an opportunity to put more, more of the margin in each segment of the entire channel's pocket. Because we align from the very beginning the genetics, the feed, how we care for that animal, then how we process it and how we package it. When that is aligned, then we can move profit throughout the entire channel. But when that's not aligned, that doesn't happen.
2: Tim, value can be added to a product anywhere along the line. Value comes in a lot of different forms. If you're not participating on some level in adding that extra value that's going to be recognized at the other end of the channel when consumers buy it, then you're not going to get paid for that extra value. And so that's why we encourage producers to listen to their partners upstream, be responsive to their partners upstream, and those partners are going to be willing and ready to compensate them for the value that they're, they're gonna actually provide because it enhances the
0: overall value of the product even as they pass it on from there. Great. Well, I'm coming up on my time with you both, but I really appreciate this. Any final thoughts before I let you go?
1: Thank you for having us on. This has been, been fun to, to talk about these issues and I hope your audience enjoys hearing about what we've been doing in the meat industry.
2: Yeah, I really appreciate the time, Tim. We're in a, in a strange part of history right now. And as we all think about where we're headed, One thing that we want everybody to consider is that we've got a a consumer out there right now who is incredibly insecure with everything, including our meat programs and, and whether or not they're going to be able to feed their family. So, From our perspective as a marketing company, we're gonna encourage everybody to over-communicate, provide as much information and content as possible at this point, because we need to keep them aligned with us and and we need to make sure that the consumers feel like we had them through this process so that they're still loyal and feel that
0: they can trust us and depend on us when we come out of this. Thank you very much to Danette and Michael for being on the show. I definitely appreciated both of their experiences on building a principled company and their insights on today's meat industry. No matter where your interests lie, I think there's some real takeaways there uh, for all of us interested in agriculture. If the talk about connecting with consumers is something you'd like to dive deeper into, I want to give a shout out to another podcast I'm a part of with Merck Animal Health. They're releasing a few episodes on a show called Caring for Animals and Creating Trust. You may have heard the episode they did on veterinary and health and well-being that I played as part of episode 207 of this podcast. The most recent episode over there is on the neuroscience of how effective infographics are at communicating about agriculture. If that sounds interesting to you, go listen over there at Caring for Animals and Creating Trust on any podcast player. But it's time now for our Founder Spotlight. We do these occasionally where we feature an early stage startup. Today's features Jordan Fazy, who is the founder and CEO of Finite. As you'll hear, Finite is helping livestock producers convert manure into a marketable fertilizer. Jordan shared his company's story at our first ever FOA pitch event. We're about to host the second one this month, so if that's something you'd like to be a part of, you can sign up for the FOA community over at patreon.com forward slash agriculture. So here's Jordan sharing some background on the problem that Finite is solving.
3: So water pollution is one of the world's biggest environmental problems. Uh, It can cost billions of dollars to clean up a polluted waterway. Uh, Animal farmers do their best. Uh, but they do contribute to this uh, challenge. Now, the USDA says that American animal farmers make more than $4 billion worth of recoverable manure every year, and we want to turn animal farms into the renewable fertiliser mines of the future, paying farmers to prevent billions of dollars worth of water pollution. Solving this problem could have a profound impact on the world and it's why I found it finite. The reason this is a problem is that manure is wet and drying systems that turn manure into marketable products are too expensive. Each animal farm produces thousands of tonnes of manure every year and it takes the same amount of energy to evaporate one tonne of water as it does to drive a car 2,000 miles.
0: Jordan's background is in water quality and finding ways to efficiently clean up water using things like algae. A trip to the White House and an introduction to Smithfield helped him realize the opportunity to apply this background to livestock.
3: In 2016, I was at the White House getting an award from the USCPA, and Smithfield Foods invited me to North Carolina to look at their hog farms. Now, North Carolina is a major animal producing region. It's second in the country for pork and third in the country for poultry. And nearly half the state's hogs exist in Duplin and Sampson County. When you're driving through the region, you wouldn't realise how intensive the farms are there because they're so well run. But the average farm in North Carolina has more than 30 other hog farms within three miles of it. And the challenge these farmers are facing is that their lagoons are filling up with sludge. And there's nowhere for this sludge to go.
0: So Jordan started Finite to help producers like those he met in North Carolina. Finite's patented system drastically reduces the traditional costs of drying manure.
3: It's called a sludge drying wetland. And it's a breakthrough in manure drying that we've commercialized at full scale in North Carolina. So using this system, we've been able to reduce the cost of drying hog manure by more than 90%. Operation of the system is simple. The farmer pumps waste out of their lagoon and into the wetland. The wetland itself has no moving parts, and instead plants in the system grow their roots out through the material and dry it out naturally using a combination of solar energy and evapotranspiration. It's a one-step process, and the final material is suitable for marketing directly as fertilizer. Uh, NC State University have tested this fertiliser and found it has an NPK of 312.2, so it's much more concentrated than other manure-derived fertiliser products. The really intensive drying conditions within the system mean that we can build them smaller and reduce the capital cost to build one of these systems on a farm. Because rainfall has been excluded, the final material is also drier.
0: Finite is trying to go even further than just helping speed up manure drying time. They actually want to help livestock producers turn this manure into a revenue source.
3: Our goal is to build a profitable business model for farmers here. In the fall of this year, our third generation system will be available, ready for production. It will produce profits of $11,000 a year to a farmer from selling their fertilizer. The system will cost $58,000 to build. And the revenues from the system continue for the life of the farm. The system has a payback period of three years. And so for hog farmers in North Carolina, who are facing tens of thousands of dollars in costs to dispose of this sludge, being able to make money from this material is a big deal for them.
0: The relationship between finite and livestock producers really becomes a partnership, and the financial incentives are aligned.
3: We supply farmers with a dredge, Uh, that is used to pump the waste out of the lagoon into the wetland, but the farmer operates the thing entirely. But the long-term operation of the system is a partnership between us and the farmer. Uh, So we make most of our money by partnering with farmers on the sale of the fertiliser. So that $11,000 worth of profit a year is what's left after we've split the proceeds of marketing the material And so we sit alongside the farmer providing technical support. Uh, We handle the quality control and the actual marketing of the fertiliser material for the farmer, but then we split those proceeds uh, between us and them. So we sit alongside the technical components of perhaps dredge maintenance or things we provide for the farmer. Uh, But this is a really simple system. It's got some pumps It's got a greenhouse, it's got some fans, and it's got some plants. These are all dead simple things that farmers can run themselves, and that's what we've found in practice already in North Carolina.
0: Ultimately, their ambition is to make the environmentally sustainable thing also the financially sustainable
3: one. Uh, We help farmers uh, protect the environment as well. Making fertilizer out of manure essentially eliminates the land application of manure on the farm, Uh, and makes animal farming a really sustainable option where manure nutrients get returned back to growing regions where the animal feed is produced and creates a circular loop for manure fertiliser use. We can combine these systems with anaerobic digesters uh, and essentially we make fertiliser out of everything that is left in the manure after the digester has made the biogas Uh, and it can clean up greenhouse gas emissions, reduce greenhouse gas emissions by 70% and also odour generation on farms as well, which is an issue in North Carolina. Uh, And also by cleaning up the water uh, that is used to flush out hog barns, animal welfare is improved. The atmosphere within the barn is much, much nicer and because the atmosphere is improved.
0: Thanks to Jordan for being part of our first ever Future of Agriculture Pitch event. You can go learn more about them at finite-us.com. It's P-H-I-N-I-T-E. Once again, if you want to attend the next event and hear a couple exciting early stage startups in agriculture, you can do so by joining our membership community over at patreon.com forward slash agriculture. As always, I appreciate your time and attention. I don't take it lightly. I'll be back next week with more stories of ag innovation.